I am your host for this evening, and just so in case you're worrying, we're going to keep it snappy, keep it light-hearted. We are going to have some interviews, uh, then we'll have an interval with some drinks, and then we'll come back for a panel discussion and a couple of special guests at the end. You were quite outspoken during your time about uh, the EU's uh, attempt to put a, put a tariff on Chinese solar panels. I mean, did that get resolved? And can you just tell us what that signified for you? Mm. Well, one, probably the, other, the thing that would have been another close call for me in terms of what the thing I'm proudest of is also the thing that's probably most controversial. I was a huge champion of decentralized energy, having written a, book, a, a pamphlet called uh, Power to the People back in 2006. But I also was very aware of the escalating cost of the feed-in tariffs. And many people remember that I... Uh, intervened to reduce quite considerably the feed-in tariff, particularly for solar, in 2011. Um, at that point, um, I was told that I had killed the solar industry, that it was, you know, it was uh, going to kill it stone dead. Since when, uh, we've added about six gigawatts of solar um, to, uh, to British uh, energy supply. And I think last week, there was a day in the week when uh, solar was contributing 15% of UK electricity. We're able to do that because we've put, now put in place a uh, tariff that has predictable digression, that is getting cheaper and cheaper to fund, that is so it's economically sustainable for taxpayers uh, and for bill payers, um, and is also driving the industry. And the thing to remember about solar is, yes, the actual PV panels um, are by and large manufactured more cheaply um, mm. in China, although that's not universally the case now. Um, but a large part of the value chain isn't just in the manufacturer. In solar now, over 50% of the overall installed cost is in other things apart from just yeah. the, the PV. There is a huge revolution coming now that isn't just going to be fueled by the pages of The Guardian or huge amounts of public money, but actually driven by innovation, by entrepreneurs, by economic necessity. And this is really, really exciting stuff. So I you know, don't want to say this is a big global problem that can only be dealt with by politicians, but actually we need politicians to play their part supporting unleashing all these market forces. What about this uh, slightly anti-market, anti-carbon credits line? I mean, you, you are literally the, the world's expert in this, <clears> so uh, what, what do you make of it? So um, I think you have to kind of almost go back one step. And so first you remember that it's an encyclical, not just an encyclical on climate change, but it's much broader than that. It's bigger than that, and it's more kind of um, longer looking than that. I mean, and this is also isn't the first time the Catholic Church has spoken about climate change and environmental issues. Um, so I think amongst the circles I talk to within the uh, CAFOD and others, they're very happy that this is almost an aggregation of thinking from a long time. If you look at the history of encyclicals, if you look at the history of Catholic social teaching, these are recurring themes that have come up again and again and again. And the Pope himself, has, he's very plainly candid about the fact that if you look at the encyclical, you read the encyclical, and look at the references of the encyclical, this is a document made up of the Catholic social teaching. This is a document made up from what bishops have said before. And so he's really brought it together, and it's addressing an issue that it's quite radical, fundamentally. He's really challenging us to think about what is human development, what is human progress. And that's why I think the kind of real strength of the document is. Where it intersects with the market is ultimately where he says that you cannot have a purely economic and technical, technological fix when you have a vast amount of the global population who can't feed itself. Those are, there's, you know, there's, there's things that the kind of market cannot do. 
specifically on the carbon credit thing, it's also in this vein of actually, okay, there's a policy mechanism that's been created, but who's it being created for and who's it in the interest of? I don't think the Pope is particularly anti-emissions trading. I don't, I'm, I'm pretty confident if you sat him down and had a, he can understand the academic and kind of, yeah, the academic arguments about it, he can appreciate the nuance, the, the passion which the, the Commission will talk about, it's been the climate policy of Europe. But he does say, well, you have a kind of the offsetting side of it, which is very detrimental to populations in other parts of the world. What, what can the city do in, in helping us to solve this conundrum? This well, is really for you, Barbara. That's, that's fine. I mean, one of the things that's actually really interesting about this is I would, in turn, charge everybody in this audience, because business in the city will do what their customers and what their investors want. And that's what they will do first and foremost, because that's how they make a profit. Um, and if they're doing something you don't like and you're not saying something about it, then they're going to keep doing it. But if you will start saying what you want to see in your products and what you want to see in the things you'll invest in, then that starts to be sending the most important message to them, which is their stakeholders care about how they behave on corporate social responsibility, how they behave on climate change. And so starting to say to your pension fund what you want it invested in, starting to say where you want your money and voting with your money is the biggest and most single most important thing you can do to get the city to change. But just from a kind of global oil and gas perspective, Marco, what, what are the big challenges that you think the sector's grappling with at the moment? I think the, uh, on the oil front, I think oil and gas are becoming more and more separate. They used to be oil and gas kind of as a same thing. I think oil has its own challenges clearly linked to uh, shale oil in the US and OPEC and how that thing plays out and whether oil is at 40 or 150 makes a huge difference. Um, and, and I think those are the, the, there's no policy implication. It's kind of geopolitics and, and OPEC uh, dynamics and, and of course the industrial um, kind of fracking and, and shale oil stuff. On the gas front, it's entirely policy driven, uh, especially in Europe. Uh, we've seen gas really shrink from 40% of the mix down to 20. Uh, and a small part of that has been renewables and a huge part of that has been coal. And so the, and, and with Brian, we've done a lot of work on, on this together with Sandbag, and uh, really that's where Europe has got it completely wrong in, in allowing the cheap coal that has been displaced by the even cheaper gas in the States to come over here and really destroy what is essentially a very valuable and precious and clean market, which is that of natural gas. So as, a, as I look at the present, I think there's a big policy failure in Europe. Uh, I think we're making huge progress uh, rapidly uh, and hopefully Paris will kind of seal something binding. I think there is progress being made, in part because of the effort of, of the work we've launched together. So the big CEOs of all the European oil and gas companies have finally agreed uh, to uh, basically support carbon pricing. This was unthinkable two years ago, even a year ago. And I mean, Julia, obviously you're, pure, you're a pure renewables play, aren't you? And I mean, Things are shifting there, aren't they? I mean, it, it's, you, you reported on your website recently that on Saturday, was it last Saturday, there was a point where we were, were generating enough renewable energy in the UK to provide 99% of, of homes. Um, can you talk, tell us about that? I mean, how, yeah. how, how significant is that, do you think? I think over the last two years, we've seen a significant shift where renewables are a significant proportion of the market. So I think the first quarter of this year is roughly average of 22% of the UK's electricity coming from renewable energy. And I think we kind of forget how important it is, is that we generate power. That's a really, really 
um, part of integral part of the UK going forwards as an industrial base. And it, the, the conversation about subsidies kind of forgets that mm. is how important it is. But, um, are you, but are you a subsidy junkie? And my personal view is I don't want to be. I want to get off subsidies as quickly as possible because it means that I don't have to take a sharp intake of breath every time we get a new government. <laughs> and actually, we can go forwards and go, okay, so fine. They, they can do what they want to do, but actually we've got a substantial business model that will survive whatever happens in politics. Mm -hmm. And kind of good energy, to be fair, is that's what we've tried to do, is we're, we're not a subsidy junkie as a, as a company. We're about 5% of our income comes from subsidies. So it really is about providing a long-term business model that stacks up commercially mm -hmm. in an open market. I, I think the UK is getting it right. It took, it took a while, but it's getting it right and focusing on uh, research, focusing on, on, on the more value-added bits of renewables. I think Europe has got it completely wrong. Um, uh, a lot of the players have 100% of their profit coming from subsidies, not 5% of the revenue. Uh, in Europe, we spend today 65 billion euros on subsidies, and that's going to grow to 85 billion euros. That's a, a Greek bailout every year. Uh, and the net balance of CO2, because coal has increased to the extent it has, means that we haven't reduced CO2. And, and there's, no, there's no value added in the research and development. With a fraction of that money, you could really invest in batteries and the new solar in what is going to make the difference. I mean, stepping back from all of this, globally, we have to remember we're still only generating 3% of primary energy from renewables. And that's notwithstanding a huge growth rate. Mm -hmm. And even keeping that growth rate through subsidies, through um, better efficiency, you're still going to get to 5%, 6% over a long period of time. And coal is at 30 and coal is growing. Yeah. So, 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 so that's, that's what's hurting the yeah. planet. So, yes, we have a problem in the media, don't we, gentlemen? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it's a problem. I think the media are dealing with this um, pretty spectacularly well. I mean, all you've got to do is look at the, uh, you know, the recent general election and the way climate change utterly dominated the campaign. <laughs> and subsequently, uh, George Oswald's budget, I mean, it was shot through with measures to con combat climate change. So, you know, I think we're doing a great job. There, there's, yeah. a, there's one way of looking at this, which I think NGOs and environmental people tend to beat themselves up a little bit about how badly we cover climate change. Um, because actually, when you look at the reality, and I did a quick um, search on a, on a newspaper website on print uh, features and news and comment about certain subjects. So I, I searched for climate change. And in the first two weeks of the month, there were 189 features and stories mentioning climate change. Um, if you look at what are the other big issues of the day that affect people and kill people and are threatening, so clean water would be high on the list. Um, that got 55 mentions. Most of those were to do with resorts in Greece, which have got lovely clean water as well, rather than the issue of um, disease. No money. Um, malaria, there were only 19 mentions, and this is something that kills X million people a year. There are only 600 mentions of Africa mm. in the papers in that period. Uh, Greece got about 1,400. And the Cardassians, who my wife informs me are not an evil race of aliens from uh, uh, Star Trek um, <laughs> got 101 mentions. So actually, we are writing about climate change in the media. I was environment editor of the Mail for four years, and when I was on, I should stress, there's a difference as well between the Mail, the Mail Online, and the Mail on Sunday. So I only work for the Daily Mail. The Mail Online's really long, isn't it? It's very it long. It's got lots of pictures of celebrities and yeah. uh, cellulite. But when I was there, we didn't run one story denying the science of climate change. So the Guardian's been running this uh, Keep It in the Ground campaign since uh, March now. And um, particularly, we're, we're trying to 
um, kind of do climate change in a different way, sort of up the ante, and because we just felt that you know the reporting on climate change wasn't making the impact that it that it should, and um, in in particular, we were sort of highlighting the global fossil fuel divestment movement, um, and we were specifically asking two of the most amazing organisations in the world, the Wellcome Trust and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, to divest their massive amounts of cash from um, from fossil fuel companies. Uh, well, you know, we're still waiting for the Wellcome Trust and Gates to do the right thing. Gates, uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, did put two billion into renewable energy, which I think yeah. we guilted him into that. Ed, you were the uh, you were the Secretary of State for the Department of Climate Change. In fact, you were the first Secretary of State of the Department of Climate Change. Um, and are you going? Is this something that you know? What were your proudest moments uh, when you were in that job, Ed? I think our proudest moment was probably the Climate Change Act. Um, but I think, in a way, the Climate Change Act happened not really because simply politicians made it happen, but because the movement sort of demanded it happened. I think it is recognised as a world-leading uh, act of parliament. I think lots of the things that are now happening and that we are encouraging other countries to do are based on that idea. Um, I mean, look, this is an area I care a lot about. It's an area I'm going to be uh, interested in in my new, in my new role. Um, which I'm sort of adapting to. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, I mean, I suppose one observation I would have, which is maybe relevant to the conversation you're having, is think about why the Climate Change Act happened. It, it definitely happened because of the popular pressure and the popular movement. And if I may be so bold, with, at the risk of making myself unpopular with the audience, I think there is less, my observation will be, there is less of that movement now than there was in the run-up to Copenhagen. So... Copenhagen was December 2009. If I think about Paris and the importance of Paris, my observation would be at this stage there is less of that movement and that sense of urgency. Uh, I, I don't know if you've noticed this, but I've seen perhaps more businesses actually now involved in the lobbying. Have you, you, have you heard of We Mean Business and the, and the groups around that? I mean, it seems like those companies who are now on the side of you know, enlightened self-interest are actually getting involved, perhaps making up for the absence of the NGOs, do you think? Or is that wishful thinking? I think it's wishful thinking. Um, uh, um, no, I do. I mean, look, I, I think the role of business in this is incredibly important. And uh, certainly my time, Green Alliance, the Aldersgate Group, were bringing together business and others. But uh, look, as a politician, if I think about Copenhagen and wh why did I feel, and we can get into whether Copenhagen was really the disaster that lots of people portray it as, but why did I feel that Copenhagen needed to be a success? Obviously, you know, I'm a great moral person, I wanted it to be a success, but I also felt the pressure of the movement. Mm. And if I fast forward three, four months, I mm. would suggest that David Cameron, Amber Rudd, you know, they should feel the same sense of obligation and urgency. Mm. Mm. Um, and I don't think it's there at the moment, and nor do I think that, you know, I think, look, it looks like there might be an agreement in Paris, but it's going to be a weak agreement, mm. and mm. it's not going to be what two degrees demand. So, you know, I, I think that I would say kind of, yeah. you know, make noise and make trouble for politicians, I mean, including for, for you know, for politicians of all parts. Ed, uh, everyone tonight has had a picture of them uh, put up. It's, this, it's not that picture, don't Bacon worry. Bacon sandwich. Can, no, it's not that picture. Uh, can, we, can we have Ed's picture? Ed, what were you thinking here? What was going on here? This is February 2014. I was thinking um, these aren't my wellies. Uh, <laughs> Uh, uh, no, these are these are the uh, this is the floods, yeah. and um, 
Well, I, I think I, what... Yeah, go no, go, go. No, no, after you. Well, I just, we, thought, we, we were trying to think, you looked like something awful was happening, just, just off to your, to your left. Can we show what we think was happening? Nigel Farage, I think he was unveiling those Yeah, there horrible... was a bit of a sort of politician flood tourism. Uh, <laughs> um, look, you know, in a way, I think that's one of the interesting things about this climate debate is uh, these events happen and people, when the events happen, suddenly say, oh, my God, you know, this is a, this is a sign of things to come if climate change, you know, has its way, and then everybody forgets about them. And suddenly, you know, remember Cameron said after this, money is no object uh, when it comes to the, the floods. And then pretty soon everybody forgets that and, and the sort of caravan moves on. And in a way, part of the job of many of the people in this room is to make sure that the caravan doesn't simply move on. I, I would, the other observation I would make, this is a more optimistic thought, is that look, the, there's lots of things that have happened in the last five years, like the price of solar, the price of renewables falling, like the industrial case being better established, all of those things which should make one more optimistic about what the, the divestment movement, you know, lots of those, th lots of those pieces, there are more pieces in place mm. than there were five years ago, yeah. but, the, but the challenge is in a way more yeah. urgent. Yeah, we're five years further on, aren't we? Five years further on. Um, but, so can I ask, are you gonna, is this a topic you want to return to? Definitely. Is it, yeah, so we can expect to see you helping rally the troops. Well, partly in the context of sort of intergener you know, inequality and intergenerational inequality. I mean, that is one of the biggest challenges I think our country in particular faces, and there is no greater injustice to future generations than our, um, our generation. Yeah. Um, you know, burning just all the, the burning, But yeah. we don't know what's going to happen. And in some ways, it's quite terrifying, the prospects of what's going to occur over the next few years. Uh, Mr. Miliband was talking a bit about trying to be optimistic. So I'm just going to end this little, uh, this little uh, thing by doing a poem of optimism. Uh, it was written by a woman who's a bit tired of it now, so she doesn't like her name to be stuck on the end of it. But anyway, it's a poem of optimism. Let's hope, you know, perhaps we can do something. It's called Sometimes. Sometimes things don't go after all from bad to worse. Some years muscatel faces down frost, green thrives, the, crop, the crops don't fail. Sometimes a man aims high and all goes well. A people will sometimes step back from war, elect an honest man, decide they care enough that they cannot leave some stranger poor. Some men become what they were born for. Sometimes our best efforts do not go amiss, Sometimes we do as we meant to. The sun will sometimes melt a field of sorrow that seemed hard frozen. May it happen for you. Thank you. <laughs>